If you have your Bible open to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and when you get into the chapter of Luke and uh, 19, you're going to find that Jesus is talking a little bit about waiting productively. How many of you like to wait? Lift your hand if you like to wait. I don't even see a hand. Not even one hand went up. I seriously mean, I don't think I saw one hand go up that you like to wait. I don't like to wait. I mean, if you put the toast in a toaster, you're wondering why it's taking so long. If you put the food in the microwave, you're wondering why it's taking so long to warm up. Am I right? If I am, say yes. You put clothes in the washer and you expect to throw them in the dryer in a minute. You can't do that. And those new washers are more aggravating than the old ones. You hear them go, like they're sick. It's like, give it a cough drop. What's wrong with this thing? So if you throw a cough drop in, tell me if it works. It might help it spin better. I don't know. It's so aggravating to sit there and wait. And then have you ever sat at a train stop? Like going through Sladington, you know, there's a train track there or some town you live in. You know, there's a train track. It seems like the 150-car train comes by when you're in a hurry, right? And you kind of get to sit there and just wait and wait. And how many times have you been in a hurry to work or a hurry to church or someplace, and all of a sudden you see a speed trap with a cop sitting there. All of a sudden you drive like you're headed to Sunday school. And you just go about 20 miles lower than the speed limit. And they want to pull you over because you're going so slow. Quit waiting. Hurry up. But when we wait, when we wait, we're supposed to wait productively. Jesus gives a parable here. A parable is a story, comparative truth. And so he gives that to highlight the fact of what he's going to do. Now, I spoke about it last week, but it is worth talking about this week, too, because we're talking about waiting. And we're waiting. And so his parable that he gives, if you just cut it down into a little bit more of a bite size, and you just understand it as best we can right now, I think we could put it almost this way. He is giving them a story, and this parallels with their political situation, so they understood this. So Jesus used every illustration he could around him. He even used their political world. So it's no problem for the church to talk about politics and all that. And so he was talking about that, um, about how they would have kings and how their kings would be appointed, but they would have to go and then they'd have to do something to be approved, ultimately back with Herod, and then they would come back and they would be put in, in or with Caesar, whoever they were supposed to go see to be installed for that kingship over that province. And they would have to have that happen. Now, he says, I'm going to be gone, and they don't get it. They think I'm getting ready to set up a kingdom. So he says, well, here it is. It's like this. It's like this king uh, is going to have a kingdom, but he has to go away for a while to get it approved, and he's going to ask his, his friends to do some work for him while he's gone, and then when he comes back, he's going to reward them. Now we can get that, because that's right down our lane. That's what he's doing. He said, I'm going to set up my kingdom on earth. They'll be talking about it next week. I'm going to be setting up my kingdom on earth. And he says, and when I do that, he says, I'm going to go away for a while, and then I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm going to reward those that I have given opportunity to. So when I talked about Clyde a little bit ago, he fits right into what I've just talked about because he's going to be rewarded heavily for the work he did for the Lord in faithful service to him. And so will you. And so will I. So let's look at this and let's unpack it for a minute. I think it's worth our time. Very much worth our time. Jesus clarifies three kingdom insights here to his followers that show that we need to anticipate his coming and remain busy in productive waiting. Let's look at it just for a minute. The people thought the kingdom of Christ would happen right now in verse 11. And Jesus realizes this and he says, no, I'm going to talk to him. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we look at that wonderful prayer and pattern prayer, Jesus says, 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we like to take that and we like to put it in our Western world mind. We like to put it in U.S. currency, if you will. And what we like to do is say, hurry up and do it now. Come back now. And what we like to do is say, Lord, you see how bad something is and something else is and something else is. You ought to be coming back right now. And we try to counsel God on when he ought to send Jesus back to the world. Now, we want to pray for the kingdom to come. We want to pray for his return. But we try to coach him and counsel him as if we have to bribe him in some way to be able to come back. But the fact of the matter is, it's your kingdom come, your will be done, not your kingdom come, our will be done. Now Christ's kingdom will come to earth when God decides. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36 highlight this for us. When it says to us about Christ's return, it says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The kingdom is going to happen in power and glory and grandeur. Make no mistake about it. It is just ahead of us. But as we are still between now and then, we have to be advised that we are supposed to be active, productively serving our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not religious environmentalists coming to church and trying to critique the music, trying to critique the Sunday school class, trying to critique the missions ministry, trying to critique the pastor but I know you would never do that, but we wouldn't try to critique everybody. I can't hardly say critique today. <clears throat> I'm glad I'm going up to the New England states next week, but <laughs> then I can say critique again. And so we, 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 we're not supposed to be the environmentalists. You're sitting there kind of like, so, no, we're supposed to be worshipers. We're supposed to be active participants. We're supposed to understand that we are what the Bible uh, teaches us or infers, and that we begin to understand as we study theology. We would say that we are the church militant. When we go to heaven in his kingdom, we are the church triumphant. That doesn't mean we're warring against people in the sense that we're out there shooting up the world. That isn't what that means. Spiritually, we're in a warfare and we're, we're the church militant. So what we want to do is to be able to give everything we can to the cause of Christ. Now, a lot of people get excited about the end times and they really are excited about it. I'm looking forward to it as well. In this sense, I'm looking forward to the very end of it, not the process in between, because that's not going to be real pretty. But I remember standing on the front porch of a church when I was a young guy back in, in the town I grew up. And as I stood on the front porch, this guy held up this image of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was president then and said, Kevin, we believe this guy is the Antichrist. I said, what? Yeah. J-I-M-M-Y 6, C-A-R-T-E-R 6. And he came up with something else for the other six. And I looked at him and I said, hmm. Jimmy Carter was a Sunday school teacher down in his class. He wasn't against Christ. He wasn't a good president, but he wasn't against Christ. Somebody asked me if Obama was Antichrist. Well, he wasn't for the Christians, but I don't think he's the Antichrist. Somebody asked me if Donald Trump was the Antichrist. He was the kindest to Christians in our generation. I don't think he's the Antichrist. I think the Antichrist will come out of the European countries down the line and probably or could be possibly alive today. I remember our pastor get up and he'd preach and he said, you know, there were some people in a town that sold all their possessions. And when they sold all their possessions, they bought white robes and they went out on a mountain because they had predicted Jesus would return on such and such a day. And they sat there and they were very discouraged when he didn't show up. It didn't work out quite the way they wanted. In 1988, I was preaching and in 1988, I was called, because I preach a lot of revival meetings, to a church in South Missouri. I'll leave it at that. 
And I was called down there. But in 1988, there was a fellow whose name was Edgar Wisenat. And some of you might remember, he created a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Well, it was interesting. Because I knew some of the preachers that lived in that particular area, and they had been really buying into this book, and they had been talking about how the rapture is probably happening, very much so could happen in 1988. And I went in, and I preached a message, and it went over really badly. I said, what if Jesus did not come back in 1988? What will you do then? And when you're standing there in front of a bunch of people, and they're looking at you, they're looking at you like, you idiot, shut up. But I was preaching truth, because Christ could have come back in 88. He didn't, but he could have. And he could come back in 2021. He may. I'll be glad to see him if he does. It'll be a great day, won't it? And then notice in our passage here that Jesus spoke to them about the time between the first and second coming. He says to them in verse 12, and then moving on into the other verses here, he says, basically, each person has been given something. They're supposed to do something with that something they have been given. In other words, each person is uniquely designed. Recently, I participated in a funeral while I was with the director. He said, Kevin, we do hundreds of funerals a year. And he told me how many. He said, we do hundreds of funerals a year. And he said, I've noticed something. Not one of them is the same as the other. Even when they come from the same parish, not one of them is the same as the other. Behavioral genetics teaches us that the likelihood of someone with your set of genes in the past or in the future is infinitesimal. It's not going to be the same. You're uniquely you. Forensic science teaches us something else. Our DNA is different than the person sitting beside us. Even twins have different DNA. They can be very close. I watched a forensic study one time about a couple of guys that were twins, and their genetic codes were so close that they were ready to arrest the wrong guy. And he said, no, you want my brother. We're Jekyll and Hyde. He's the bad guy, and sure enough, that was the case. It's amazing because you're uniquely you. I don't know who studied them. I don't know how they arrived at this conclusion, but someone has told us that no snowflake is like the other snowflake. Any other snowflake. Uh, elbow your neighbor and say you're a lot like a flake. <laughs> a snowflake. <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. <coughs> So all of us are supposed to serve. According to this parable, Jesus is telling here, he says, I want every one of you to serve uniquely where you are. And you don't have to be Clyde. You do not have to do what Clyde did. You don't have to even try to imitate him. If you're a family member watching this today or here in the service, you do not have to imitate him. He had his calling, his life, his lane. He drove in it, rode in it, walked in it, lived it out, did a beautiful job with it. All God wants you to do is live yours out. Eric Little used to run, and he said, when I run, I feel the glory of God. He was fast. He set records for his running. All we're supposed to do is take what God has given us, and we're supposed to run with it. One of the beauties about being a pastor right now is just saying, God, you've called me to be who I am. I don't have to be Swindoll. I don't have to be Stanley. I don't have to be Jeremiah. I don't have to be anybody else, Groeschel. I don't have to be Andy Stanley. Charles Stanley. I don't have to be Scott. I don't have to be Justin. I don't have to be Pastor Dwight. God, you call me to be Kev, and that's all I have to do. And some days I just relax in this because nobody else can be me, but I can. And nobody else can be you, but you can. 
God has made you uniquely you to do whatever it is. So whether you till the soil or whether you work with the water or whether you work in forensics or whether you work with something in medicine or whether you work in law enforcement, whatever you do, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And what I've been praying is, God, let me be enough Christian that people would know that there is a difference and let them hunger after you. Wherever I go, let there be this. So I want to ask you five quick questions Lucado puts in his book, Max Lucado in the Common Life. It's a beautiful question, and I go back through this every once in a while. And so once in a while, I even put it in a message because I think it's helpful. These are five questions that define your story and the acronym of this. They are so helpful. The first S is strength. Choose a verb that describes you. You like to oversee, you like to repair, you like to create, whatever it is. Choose a topic, the noun. You like animals, you like children, you like uh, statistics, or choose optimal conditions. What triggers you to motivation? Are you motivated by problems? Some people run to problems. Some people run from problems. Can I get a witness in the house? Some are moved by the needs of others, and some are moved by routines. I remember my friends went to work at the GM plant or to interview for the GM plant. It's an automotive, large automotive place outside St. Louis in Winsville. And so I got to go there and take a tour, and they showed me the chapel they have in the place and met the chaplain and spoke with him. And then my friends from the church had a lot of them that worked there, a number of them. And this husband and wife went there to interview. And the husband went there to interview, and he was a phenomenal welder and machinist. And they said to him, uh, take this test. He took it. He passed that test. They hired him on. And he's like, wow. He checks with his wife and says, how'd you do on your test? She said, I must have done really good because they don't want me to come back. (laughs) And they told her, they said, you are too creative, too imaginative, and you cannot handle the routines. We want people that can handle routines. It is a gift if you can handle routines. If you can handle statistics, it is a gift because most of us don't like them that much. It is a gift if you can be a funeral director. It is a gift if you can be law enforcement. It is a gift if your body is made to be an athlete. I spoke a few weeks ago to a fellow that was here who is an Olympic athlete. He's competed in the Olympics, and he was here at the district conference. And I spoke to him, and I said, man, you look so in shape. You look so... He said, I'm practicing all the time. All the time, I'm practicing with my eye on that next competition. Relationships. Think about your moments of satisfaction, he asked. How are you relating to people? You like to be by yourself, or you like a lot of people around? And then there is the why in this word story acronym, and that is the yes. Where do you feel God's pleasure? Where do you feel Him most? 1 Peter chapter 4 and 10 says it this way, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards by God's grace in its various forms. Every one of us can do something. You're not a zero. You are a number of importance to God. He has created you in His image. And he has created you with abilities, and he has given you talents. And whether you get 10 results or whether you get 5 results isn't the point. The point is to do the best you can with who you are to make the difference for Almighty God because it means something to him. In the crypts of Westminster Abbey in the 11th century, there was an Anglican bishop that, wrote some, that had something written for the wall of his tomb. Let me read it to you. When I was young and free, my imagination had no limits, and I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older, I discovered that the world would not change. So I shortened my sight somewhat and decided to change only my country. I'll just change my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew in my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt 
I settled for changing my family and those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. And now, as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize, if I had only changed myself first, then by example, I would have changed my family, and from their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to make my country better, and who knows, I might have even changed my world. Interesting thought, isn't it? Let's look at that last insight here. We're going to get rewarded. We're going to get rewarded for what we do for Christ. Do you remember him talking about if you have two coats, you give one to somebody else? That's a good thing. If you could give just a cup of cold water in my name, that's a good thing. You're going to get rewarded. You don't lose your reward, he says. You remember that? You think about the opportunities you have to be kind to somebody. Hold a door for them. Let them go first. Times you have babysat for them when they've needed somebody to babysit. Times when you've sat with them to comfort them whenever they've had a loved one pass away. Or maybe they're in the hospital recovering. You showed kindness, took a meal to the house. Maybe you mentored someone and shared wisdom of your own life, your mistakes and your successes, your failures and all the good things. And you shared those things with somebody else. I don't think any of that goes unnoticed. I'm not going to go into it now, but the Bible talks about several crowns we're going to receive whenever we go into heaven. There are going to be several crowns that we're going to receive as reward for what we've done while we've been in this life. It's powerful. I'm not not going into them because I don't know them and don't have a clue about them. I'm not going into them because I've only got five minutes left. And so I want to keep going. But I want to look at faithfulness as defined by multiplication. Would you say that with me? Faithfulness is defined by multiplication. It's on the screen. Look at it. Faithfulness is defined by multiplication. I thought faithfulness was defined by faithfulness. Did you? If, if I come to Christ and I just kind of hold it here under the bushel, when he comes back, he'll get me and it'll all be good. Kind of that sort of timid, bashful faithfulness. When I read this, he wants us to mature past that thinking. And I have. I hope you have. When I matured past that thinking, I began to understand things like this parable. I've never preached from this parable in my life that I remember. But here we are. And it has something to say, doesn't it? There's a responsibility in verse 13 and following of the king's servant. They've been given three months wages, really, and they have been told to occupy till I come. Be busy until I return. Occupy means trade with these. Do business and put this money to work. Put your talents and your efforts to good use is what he is saying here. This is what I want you to do. The man with 10 did his best and he got a great harvest. He doubled it. He got 10 more. The man with 10, because all of them received 10, they got something, didn't they? The other guy, he came back and he had increased his by five more, so he had 15. The other guy said, no, I was scared of what was going to happen because I know you don't like sloppy and I was afraid I'd mess up and I didn't want somebody to see me and do this or that or the other. So I hid it in the cellar and now I'm bringing it back out. I'm taking off the handkerchief and I'm saying, God, here you go. I remember talking to a lady one time that was a good singer and they would ask her to sing and some of the special stuff at the church. And she said, no, I don't want to. And one day, she was a real close friend of mine, an older lady. And I said to her, why do you not feel comfortable on the stage? She says, I don't want people to look at me. I don't think I'm nice looking. We can make all kinds of excuses, can't we? 
They have been given opportunity to do something with it. The thing I think is so beautiful is how the volunteerism of this church is so strong and so meaningful. And that's what we want to continue to see happen here. But I want all of you to not allow yourself to drift through life. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 6, God says He will repay each person according to what they have done. Notice, <laughs> He said, I want you to give from this guy who just had the one, and I want you to give that to the guy who had the ten and multiplied it to the ten. And they said, but he already has. In other words, they wanted socialism. Everybody gets the same, and it's all the same. And Jesus said, no, and he went all capitalism, really. And not a political message, just an observation of money. And he says, no, give to that guy because he'll do something with it. He knows what to do with it. I want to be one of those people that Jesus says, I'll give you more. Pastor Wood one day defined me to myself. He said, Kevin, you're a guy who stands on the front porch and grabs everything that blows by. You take advantage of it. I took it as a compliment, a high compliment. Because we've got one life, one turn on this miracle round, and I want it to count. That's why we're sitting in a place like this, because I said yes to God. And others said yes to God, and it was a dream of the church and dream of my heart because God put it there. It's an amazing thing. That's why we planted other churches when some of my friends said, well, I wouldn't plant. It's COVID season. I'm not planting. I'm like, why not? It's Jesus season, baby. Let's go. And there we went. And we're looking right now, talking to a pastor about coming here to help us do some more of these. And the scripture says, so I ask you a question. Are you waiting productively? Are you waiting productively? Levi is sitting right back here. Hey, Levi. Hi, buddy. He's four. Are you four, Levi? He's almost four. He's three? He's, he'll be four in December? He's very smart. He's sitting with his dad. He takes after his mother, but he's sitting back here. <coughs> no, Pastor Peter is one of my favorite guys, and I love him. And he is a phenomenal dad. And if you're around him, I think you know that. I was sitting out here while Mel's funeral viewing was going on, and Pastor Peter wanted to go in line to meet the family. I had already been there a while, and so Levi came over into the cafe to sit down and so he was sitting there. So I sat by Levi and watched him. Levi was playing a little game. And I said, Levi, you are being so good. Your dad would be proud of you. Wow, I'm proud of you. He said, you know why I'm being good? I said, why? He said, because I love my dad. Why are we being so good at BWC? Why are we trying so hard? Why are we trying to honor God? Why are we living in the spirit of humility yet in the spirit of the strength of the Holy Spirit of God? It's because we want Him to be able to accomplish whatever He wants. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I pray that all often, very, very often. Your kingdom come. John Wesley was asked, if he knew Jesus would return the next day, what would you do, John? He said, I would go to bed, go to sleep, Wake up in the morning, go on with my work. I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed. <laughs> I can get better than that. And that's the crux of this parable. So let's keep doing what he's asking us to do. Whatever you do, do it to the glory and honor of God. If you see some areas you need to shape up, and if you really haven't been doing anything for him, you might want to say, guess what? 
I've been doing it, but not for him. Well, quit doing it for whatever you're doing it for and start doing it for him. And whatever you, he says don't do, don't do, because he changes us in different seasons, right? And he wants us to do whatever it is he's embracing in that season. So a professor used to say to us, guys, do what God is blessing. Amen. Father, we thank you for the work that you're about in this church and in our lives and in the lives of all of our friends that are watching today, whether near or far. I pray, Lord, that you would bless every one of us. Be with Don, be with Lee, be with Tammy, be with those that today just had uh, the Weber's grandchildren, 26 weeks along. Be with them, Lord. Be with those that are grieving. Be with those who are, who are looking at great opportunities tomorrow. Lord, all of us just are living out our life to bring honor and glory to you. So whatever season we find ourselves in, as Pastor Justin said earlier on, Lord, we just say, here we are. Use us to your own glory. Our hands are off. We ask you to just have your hands on. In Christ's name, amen.